This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Some murders seem to get permanently tied to other murders, either by circumstances or location, and whether or not they are joined by a serial killer. And sometimes, one case will get the spotlight while its sister cases fall into the shadow. Such is the case of tonight's mystery, the little-known slang of a young mother, brutally cut down while her son lay sleeping nearby in a crib. The motive was never determined. This is the story of Nadine Madger of Willoughby, Ohio. In 1980, this Lake County city, east of Cleveland along the Lake Erie shore, was home to 19,000 souls. It remains the only Willoughby in all of America. And there, more than 40 years ago, lived 25-year-old Nadine Madger, 5 foot 2 inches, 110 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, a graduate of Heights High School. She was mom to an eight-month-old son named Daniel and wife to Mark, the owner of a neighborhood auto body shop. They lived on Grove Avenue in a complex made of three-story brick buildings. The Madgers didn't know their neighbors particularly well, mostly from interactions as they passed in the hallway or parking lot or moments in the laundry room. On the afternoon of Friday, January the 11th, 1980, the tenants of the apartment building were stirred by the sound of a man screaming. Pauline Hamrick jumped up from her apartment on the third floor and peeked outside. She figured some children must be playing. Instead, she saw a desperate man pounding on the walls, knocking on doors, screaming that his wife was dead. She didn't immediately recognize Mark Madger, the man who lived in apartment 101. Not until he returned to his apartment, then came back out carrying his son. Mr. Madger thrust the infant into his neighbor's arms and pleaded with her to look after the child till he could find a relative to take him. 
His wife had been stabbed to death in their apartment, he told her. Mrs. Hamrick would later say, I knew darn well there was nothing I could do for her, but the baby needed attention, and it was my duty to do what I could for him. Willoughby police were called and arrived shortly before 5 p.m. Nadine was found in the kitchen of her apartment. She had been stabbed more than 20 times in the head, neck, and torso. A butcher knife was still embedded in her chest. There was no indication of a sexual assault. Nadine had put up a heck of a fight. The coroner collected her assailant's skin from beneath her fingernails. The suite was not ransacked. There were no signs of forced entry. Neighbors told police they heard nothing. The couple's baby boy was found unharmed in that living room crib. Nadine's 28-year-old husband, Mark, was interviewed and given polygraph tests, but he also had an alibi at work. It wasn't him. That made the investigation so much harder because there was nothing at the crime scene to suggest a motive. As Nadine was laid to rest at Mount Olive Cemetery in Solon, six detectives were assigned to the case. They worked with the Lake County Prosecutor's Office and the county's forensic crime investigation team. At one point, they came up with a suspect, just briefly, someone caught burglarizing another apartment near the Madgers and about the time of her murder. The man had been caught going through women's undergarments, and he failed a polygraph test given by police. But he came up with an ironclad alibi and had no scratches or bruises on him. Police were confident Nadine's killer would show the marks of the fight she had put up. The case went cold, and Nadine's story drifted into near obscurity. The one thing that kept reviving it from time to time was that the media and authorities would mention it when they talked about a couple of other murders. Now, I need you to forget about Nadine's murder for a moment and go five years from that moment to May 19, 1985, when an elderly couple well-known in the greater Cleveland area were found dead in their Shaker Heights home. 84-year-old Philip Porter was a retired executive editor of The Plain Dealer. 77-year-old Dorothy Porter was a renowned artist. They lived in a large house on Lee Road near Shaker Boulevard. They were found by their daughter and grandson when the Porters failed to answer repeated phone calls to their home. Mrs. Porter was stabbed once in the back, strangled with a cord of an iron, and left in the basement. Police said she put up a struggle because she had defensive wounds on her hands from grabbing the knife. Mr. Porter was found dead in his bed, stabbed twice in the back, a thermos of milk and a plate of crackers on the bedside table. The house wasn't ransacked. Nothing seemed to be disturbed except for a kitchen window where the intruder apparently cut through the screen and climbed inside. Police at first figured it was a burglary gone wrong. The would-be thief was probably surprised by the porters and fled after killing them. Later that same year, October 10, 1985, 
a woman from another Cleveland suburb was found dead in her East Lake home. Karen Lespina was the wife of Tony Lespina, a popular high school teacher at East Lake North. The couple had three children. Tony and the kids left the house for a short while that day. They said they were going to the store to pick up a sweetest day present. When they got back, they found Karen dead on the kitchen floor. She had been stabbed 55 times. Authorities were stumped on both of these cases for five years. And then, in 1990, the domino started to tumble. First, a young con named Donnie Soki confessed to killing Karen Lespina. He said he and a buddy went looking for empty houses to ransack when they ended up at Karen's home. She surprised them, and his buddy killed her. When that buddy came up with a good alibi, Donnie Soki changed his story. He said, okay, it wasn't his buddy. It was his own father, Ted Soki, who had been with him that night. His dad, an abusive father who ran with the Hells Angels, was the one who killed the woman. As Eastlake Detective Tom Doyle worked to build his case, Donnie said he wanted to come clean on another murder. He said he and his dad had also killed the porters. As with Karen Lespina's murder, they had broken into the house intending to rob it, and things got out of hand. The problem with these confessions was Donnie kept changing his story. He told authorities he lied about his dad being at Karen Lespina's house. And then when he changed it yet again to include his dad, the prosecutor's case against Ted Soki just got too complicated and fell apart. Eventually, Donnie Soki was convicted of killing Karen Lespina alone, and he and his father were both convicted of killing the porters. Donnie Soki is still in prison. His father died in prison in 2008. Now, back to Nadine Madger, the subject of this episode. Donnie Soki was only 13 at the time of her murder, but Detective Tom Doyle believes Nadine may have been little Donnie's training ground. He's convinced that the violent father and son duo were serial killers and Nadine was one of their victims. There has never been any evidence of that, so Nadine's case remains unsolved. Now, a twist. There is an argument to be made that Donnie Soki was never at any of those murders. Last summer, true crime author James Renner did a story about these cases on his website, and he outlined his theory that Donnie Soki wasn't there, not for the Porters, not for Lespina, and certainly not for Nadine Madger. Renner visited Donnie Soki at the Toledo Correction. The convict now sports a spiderweb tattoo that covers his entire face. Renner wrote, For his part, Donnie says he kept admitting to crimes because Detective Doyle kept putting money on his commissary account. Prison is hell, but some money for snacks and coffee makes it just a little more comfortable. 
Anyway, Renner's argument is very detailed, and rather than repeat it here, I'll refer you to his website, jamesrenner.medium.com. The story's headline is Little Liars Everywhere. And that's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio Mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.